This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We've been spending some time uh, over the last few weeks talking about growing in our, uh, in our faith by exploring and deepening our understanding of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Uh, today, I wanted to maybe expand our understanding of what the Catholic intellectual tradition entails. So uh, earlier in the year, I think back in March, Pope Francis wrote this apostolic letter uh, on the 700th anniversary of the death of Dante. And, uh, and he encouraged everyone to go and to read the Divine Comedy, uh, this, this poem of the afterlife by Dante. And I just want to draw out a couple of things here. One, he says, with this apostolic letter, I wish to join my predecessors who honored and extolled the poet Dante, particularly on the anniversaries of his birth or death, and to propose him anew for the consideration of the church, the great body of the faithful, literary scholars, theologians, and artists. And then he goes on to say he'll briefly review those interventions, uh, concentrating on the popes of the last century and their more significant statements. So he talks about um, the importance of Dante, and he brings out a couple of points, which I'm just going to read a couple of the headers here, because I think that it speaks to our understanding of the place of artistic expression, specifically in this case poetry, in the life of the intellectual uh, tradition of Catholicism. So we have the life of Dante as a paradigm of the human condition. Uh, he continues and extols the poet's mission as a prophet of hope. And then he speaks of Dante as a poet of human desire and the poet of God's mercy and of human freedom. And then a few other things that we are, are outside the scope of what I want to talk about today. So today to explore this idea of the place of specifically Dante and more broadly of poetry and artistic expression in the life of the Catholic intellectual tradition. We're going to be talking with Dr. David Russell Mosley, who's a theologian, a Catholic poet, uh, a writer, a speaker, and uh, and just a neighbor. He lives a little bit down the road from me. Uh, he received his PhD in theology from the University of Nottingham, which my only experience with Nottingham is the legend of Robin Hood, which I assume is why you went there. Oh, absolutely. No, 100%. <laughs> uh, you're the Dean of Academics at Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame in Spokane, Washington, which is a classical high school. Uh, welcome back to the show. I am so happy to be here. Uh, very happy to have uh, be back on. It's been a while. We had you, uh, I think we talked about your uh, your dissertation, Being Deified, Poetry and Fantasy on the Path to God. And I think as part of that, we talked about Santa Claus. So, you know. Of course. <laughs> why, why not? You can find that in the archives by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, uh, scrolling down till you find Dr. Uh, David Russell Mosley's name. Click on that and you can find all the episodes he's been a part of. So we have this thing where Pope Francis has invited us to read Dante again and uh, just somehow, because I mean, I guess it's a big deal that it's an anniversary, a significant anniversary. Um, there's this thing out there on the socials called The Hundred Days of Dante, put on by uh, Baylor University and uh, I think Gonzaga's a part of it, and I think that uh, the University of Dallas is a part of it, and they they have this massive book reading 
all online where you can read three cantos a day. They started in September, so if you haven't done it yet, you've got to catch up a little bit. But part of that, they have uh, some art that's inspired by Dante that they bring in. They have theologians and, and other people reflecting on this. Um, what's the big deal? This is an old, old poem written in medieval Italy uh, with a whole bunch of characters that none of us know who they are. <laughs> Why is it that now there is this surge of, of interest drawing our attention back to this poem, including from the Holy Father, uh, Pope Francis himself? That's a great question, right? And you're right. This is such an old poem. I mean, Dante's death, we're celebrating the celebrating, maybe that's not quite the right word. We're remembering, commemorating the 700th anniversary of Dante's death, which was just a couple of days ago, Um, which also means that we're celebrating, this time actually celebrating, roughly the 700th anniversary of him finishing the Divine Comedy, because he probably finished it around 1320. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, why it's 700 years old, you're right. It's about Italian, well, Italy didn't even exist yet. It's Florentine politics, right? Why Why would the Pope himself and previous Popes keep throwing this text at us? Well, and I mean, like you talk about the politics, you read through Dante and like he puts all of his enemies and people he doesn't like in hell. It's like, oh, I don't like you. This person is someone I'm not really a fan of. I'm going to put them on the lowest level, Right. Oh, absolutely. So much so that, you know, he had a, a pretty big beef with uh, Pope Boniface VIII. And constantly people are looking up saying, is that you, Boniface? Are you here now? Uh, <laughs> because well, he, he couldn't kill him because he wasn't dead yet, but he could certainly predict where he was going to go. Uh, Dante's not afraid to pull punches. You don't want to be his enemy. Um, and yet, right, in the midst of all of this, uh, some of it, still, you know, on just kind of the literary level, still being things that are interesting to look into, to learn more about what Florence was like, what the country we now call Italy was like during the 14th century. There's something much deeper that's going on, not even behind the scenes. It really is right before our eyes. It's just sometimes we don't see the trees for the wood, right? You know, we're we're lost a little bit. And not unlike the pilgrim himself. Mm-hmm. Right? We're, we're lost. And I think this year in particular, 700 years, that's a long time, right? That's, I mean, in the scheme of the church or the world, it's not, right? It's a relatively short period of time. But for a work, a more modern work to still be this important 700 years later, that's, that tells us there's something in here, right? Mm-hmm. Something to hold on to. And a big part of what that is, is this vision of reality that Dante's presenting to us. Uh, His work in the Divine Comedy is no less mythopoetic than that of, say, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? right? It's it's an imagined world, right? We're not supposed to think that he actually went on this journey. We're not supposed to think that the names he names, especially in hell, are actually there. The church is very clear. We don't know who's in hell. We don't name names. Right. But there is this deep examination of sin, repentance, and the blessedness of heaven that I think still enchants readers today. Well, I want want to draw this out because in the Catholic tradition, in our faith, we have mystics who have actually had experiences of uh, visions of hell or heaven or purgatory. Mm -hmm. And, And so we 
we put them up to scrutiny uh, until the church says that 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 specific vision is worthy of belief. Uh, And then that can inform us a little bit. And then, of course, we have scripture, and that certainly informs our belief. But here you have a work of poetry, which in many ways and, and throughout the ages has been treated in some ways as authoritative, but it starts as a work of imagination, of the Catholic imagination. So where's that line between this is merely um, a, a work of fiction or a work of poetry or an exercise in imagination to this place where it really is treated in many circles as kind of an authority on the afterlife? Yeah, uh, it's the line. It's hard to discern, you know, because it's a work of poetry, but it's it's the pinnacle of medieval work in a lot of ways in the sense that medieval man, right, what they were really good at almost above all else was systematizing things, mm-hmm. codifying things, right, pulling a bunch of disparate sources together, right? That's what they were really good at. And Dante is kind of the the premier example of that. So on the one hand, this is, it's poetry, it is fiction. He's alluding all over the place to the Aeneid and the other works by Virgil, who starts as his guide through hell and through purgatory. And yet Dante was an excellent student of Thomas Aquinas, right? And he knew Boethius. He knew the philosophy, the theology, the astronomy, the works that have been written and could be written just on Dante's understanding of the movement of the stars and the planets uh it's it's mind-boggling the amount of work that he puts into it so you can see why people might start to blur the line Mm -hmm. start to look at him as someone who's telling us what these places are really like now of course we've learned by observation that some of these things are not true you know, we've drilled pretty far into the earth so far and haven't yet discovered hell inside. Right. And we haven't gotten to the middle. So I guess we can't completely rule it out. But also we Northern hemisphere people finally figured out how to get to the Southern hemisphere, a thing that was difficult in the middle ages. And we've discovered that it's not just one vast ocean with a giant mountain on the side of it. That is purgatory itself. Mm-hmm. No, Australia's down there and the rest of Africa and <laughs> which, and which South some America. people might think. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's certainly, well, no, I think it might feel more like hell in Australia to some. <laughs> There's just lots of things there to kill you, right? There's exactly. Lots of animals after you. <laughs> but it's not, right? It's not hell or purgatory, right? It's a place where you can go and live yeah. <laughs> and in your body, right? And stay there for a long time, your whole life. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, and even into the heavens, right? And and Dante's own understanding of the heavens is actually more than just the seven planets plus the stars and the prima mobile, this ninth sphere that gets speculated about. He knows that those aren't really where people are, Mm -hmm. right? He's even, the pilgrim is told very explicitly, we're showing up here for your benefit. Yeah. Right? So you can understand because if you just showed up in the Empyrean in heaven itself, you wouldn't understand what was going on. Well, one of the things that, and as you're talking, you're bringing this out, is that the Catholic intellectual tradition and those giants within it that we look to and are somewhat amazed by, whether that be in 
700 years ago with Dante or whether that be with J.R.R. Tolkien of, of blessed memory, whose movies mm-hmm. are still coming out today, quote unquote, <laughs> right? Uh, each of them is a, uh, they, they have specifics, they, they have expertise, but there is a, a, a generality, a broad interest that goes beyond their specific uh, area of expertise that, that they are still quite competent in. And it seems like maybe one of the the difficulties we face today is that intellectualism has become so hyper-focused that we no longer have the ability to to spend time understanding the science of the heavens and also the the depths of theology. Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's it's one of the things that you see. It's been happening increasingly in education uh, for the last, I really don't know how long. You know, in the United States, you now have to have a pretty good understanding of what it is you want to do with your life by the time you're 18 so that you can choose the right major in college, which will then hyper-focus on specifically the things of your major. And then, you know, either you go on to your job that you've been prepared for, or you go on to grad school where you get more focused and, and so on and so forth. In the UK, it's even worse. You have to have it figured out by the time you're 16 hmm. when you take your GSEs, uh, these tests, or your A-levels, these tests that determine what you'll be able to study once you get to college. Yeah. Right. And so the focusing, it starts happening earlier and earlier now. So how do we break out of that, uh, both for ourselves and for our children? What, what are the things that we can do to encourage that general interest in a broader amount of of uh, topic area? Well, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, you send your kids to the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> it's a beautiful country. Come on up. It's, the, the weather's fine. <laughs> Plenty of breweries for mom and dad. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, no. I mean, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but this is the reason why we see this rise in classical schools, mm-hmm. right? Charter schools are going this route. Catholic schools are going this route. Some Catholic schools that weren't classical are becoming classical now. The elementary school my boys attend is that it's a parochial diocesan elementary school in junior high. And now they've decided to take on a classical curriculum, Mm -hmm. right? So there is a reason why we're seeing that, why we're seeing schools like Thomas Aquinas College opening up a second campus out on the East Coast, because there's a desire to get a more a broader education. Mm-hmm. So sure, that can be one answer. I'm a part of that system. I like it. It's working well for me so far, at least professionally. But it's also, we need to broaden our own interests, uh, especially when it comes to stuff like poetry. The number of people that I've encountered who will say to me like, oh, you know, I don't really get poetry or uh, I just, you know, I'm more analytical in my thinking. So poetry doesn't make sense to me. And I sit here thinking about, do you know how analytical a thinker someone like Dante was? Yeah. The the mathematical and scientific mind that he had that also expressed itself in poetic form? Right. Lewis Carroll was a mathematician at, I think, Oxford. And well, then he wrote Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Well, I heard that he, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here. This is a completely a tangent. I heard that he oh, wrote Alice funny. in Wonderland uh, to rail against calculus for not being as systematized and understandable as other maths. I have at the very least heard that same thing myself. And especially through the looking glass Mm 
Mm -hmm. Uh, The second story apparently really dives into that in a lot of ways. And you can see the way logic plays a role, especially in Through the Looking Glass, uh, that it is pretty evident he's trying to do something there. Uh, there's there is a funny story. This is a total tangent, but there's a funny story. It may be apocryphal, but if it's not true, it should be that apparently uh, I think it was Victoria was queen at the time because uh, she was queen forever uh, <laughs> when when Carol uh, Charles Dodgson was writing uh, and she got Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and loved it so much that she wrote to him saying, when your next book comes out, please send it to me. Please send me a copy. And so he did, except that his next book was a math textbook. And I <laughs> don't think she got the joke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She said when your next book, I mean, I get it. Right. Yeah. And so that's what he did. It's very logical. <laughs> We're talking today with Dr. David Russell Mosley, theologian, poet, writer, speaker, and the uh, the Dean of Academics at Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame in Spokane, Washington. Uh, so we're talking about exploring the Catholic intellectual tradition through the lens of poetry, looking specifically at Dante and the Divine Comedy, because we have this 100 Days of Dante program going on uh, that you can get to online. We'll put a link to it over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Um, you have done some engagement with the divine comedy as well beyond just reading it and meditating on it you're now doing this exercise of trying to process it and express it yourself tell me a little bit more about this yeah so it was um you know poetry is something i've i've come to still in rather recently i think i started writing it seriously back in about 2019 uh, shameless plug. My first book is now out, The Green Man. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Right. Uh, <laughs> see, I can do it too. Yeah. Uh, but this is, uh, I think it's about my fifth year teaching Dante, uh, teaching the Divine Comedy to high school students. And in the midst of this uh, 700th anniversary, the 100 Days of Dante, I thought what I want to do is write a poem for every canto of the Divine Comedy as a way of reflecting on it, uh, in some cases disagreeing with it uh, in places where Dante's medieval understanding of things doesn't cohere with our modern one, uh, and then oftentimes just wrestling with it, making it a kind of a personal reflection on my own self. Um, and so I've gotten... I've written 14 cantos uh, so far for the first 14 cantos of the Inferno. And I'm writing them each in Terza Rima, which is the rhyme scheme that we haven't found it in anybody before Dante. So I'm going to go ahead and say Dante invented it. Uh, and it's this interwoven rhyme scheme uh, that's very, it's technical. It's not terribly difficult, but it's very interesting the way he lays it out. Uh, and so I'm using that same rhyme scheme, uh, but I'm only writing 10 lines per poem mm. so that I'm not writing the whole divine comedy all over again, right. uh, <laughs> but 10 lines per, uh, per, per canto, uh, and trying to find something to latch onto that I want to wrestle with, that I want to, um, think through a little bit more deeply. Now, how, tell me a little bit. And I have a guess, but tell me a little bit about what it is about writing poetry as opposed to prose or just journaling your thoughts that makes you think about that stanza, that canto more deeply 
uh, through poetry than you would through other forms of expression. Absolutely. It's poetry is constrained, right? Even the, the freest of free verses is still at the very least constrained by the verses themselves, mm-hmm. right? So there's a constraint that makes you have to think more concisely about what you're going to write. And by sticking with Dante's own, uh, his own rhyme scheme and his own way of laying out the stanzas, that constrains me even further. But I have to think more about what words I'm going to use. And limiting myself to 10 lines further makes me have to really condense what it is I'm trying to get at. You know, sometimes it's it's well over 130 to 140 lines of poetry that I'm trying to reflect on in just 10. Right. Um, but that constraint opens me up to uh, to a kind of freedom that, that if I just left it even at prose, you know, and just I could write a hundred pages on every canto if I wanted to, I'm I'm freed in the sense that I have to just inside these these boundaries, but I can do whatever I want within those boundaries. If I had unlimited pages uh, to write about this, it would actually be for me it would be much more daunting. Because I wouldn't know where to begin, where to end, what to include. But by having to condense it down to just 10 lines in this specific rhyme scheme. And I've chosen iambic pentameter as the the meter that I'm writing in. Dante wasn't necessarily writing in that, but I speak English and English is really good in iambic pentameter. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Shakespeare proved it. If it's good enough for Shakespeare, it's good enough for me. Uh, and But it frees me to be precise, right? Rather than the the undaunting task of just, of infinity, right? The, the finitude of it frees me to really focus and, and to do it. One of the things I would imagine, um, you know, anyone who's ever played with social media, you know, you get on Twitter and you've got like 240 characters and you you copy and paste what you want to say. And it's like, uh, I'm 300 characters over or Mm -hmm. anyone who's ever written, uh, any kind of essay, you know, you put your thoughts out and you just kind of throw it down on the paper, but then it's that process of saying, okay, what do I really think about this? What, how can I say this more concisely? And so I had a friend that used to say, write to know what you're thinking, but I think really the, you edit to know what you're thinking. You, right, or to know what's most important in what you've thought. So right, the, you might get all your thoughts down on the page in that first go, but then you start to brush away what's less important and what you're left with, if you've done it well, right, is if you've got that diamond in the rough, what you're left with is the diamond, right? Right. Uh, or if it's silver in the refiner's fire, right, you've purged the dross out of it now, and what you're left with is silver. When I think of uh, specifically, you know, talk, you talk about the different constraints. You've constrained yourself by lines. You've constrained yourself by cadence. You've constrained yourself by rhyming structure. And now not only do you have to have those words, but they have to make sense in English and they have to show up mm-hmm. there and you can't have an extra syllable. And all of a sudden you have to really kind of craft and wrestle with and fight with those words without mm-hmm. so much as letting go of the true meaning of what you're saying 
because that meaning is important. And you really do get to a sense of, through poetry, through this poetic expression, a sense of what is it that really is the essence and the, the, the core nugget of that belief. And I think that this is the importance of poetry in the Catholic intellectual life is that it's not just about thinking. It's not even just about thinking about thinking, that philosophical expression. And it's not even just meditating on uh, the words of Scripture or on the those theologians who have gone before us. It's coming to a place where we know it well enough, so deep in our essence, that we can express it in a crystalline, beautifully packaged way. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, you know, I, I'm not here to toot my own horn and say that I'm the best person to do this. There are probably better poets out there who could do what I'm attempting to do much more beautifully. But that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that this is a task that I think is important. And I think it's important to me. And I'll share it with people, you know, and I'll I'll read them and I'll I'll send them out into the world hoping that they'll be beneficial, that they'll be enriching, um, that they'll be you know, enjoyable. Um, well, but, but you bring, you bring something up here. Um, now I've read your work and your work is delightful. Uh, <laughs> the, the new book is out, as you mentioned before, the green man. Um, but Chesterton said once, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. <laughs> and, and so I think as we are trying to, uh, to, engage in this artistic expression of the Catholic intellectual tradition. We have to be willing to do it badly mm-hmm. if we're ever going to do it well. We have Absolutely. to, as we wrestle with something, you, you can't just say, oh, I'm not a poet. Start, pick something yeah. up and begin that process and see how that artistic expression that you might be stiff with or, or uncomfortable with can bring about something beautiful, not only in the way that it's expressed, but in the end result of the clarification of your own thoughts. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And it's so true that there are all these things that even in general, people just used to do for fun. Uh, One of my coworkers and good friends at the school, he talks about how people used to do math for fun. Now, I still find that hard to believe, uh, <laughs> despite working at a classical school. Uh, and I, I joke, but it's true, right? There are these things that amateurs used to do all the time. And to be an amateur, the word actually means doing it for the love of it. Right. You know, yes, I'm, I'm a published poet. I identify as a poet in many ways. And not only that, but I also do it just because I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I started doing it somewhat seriously and just kept going. And we're going to talk about some of that kept going in just a moment as we explore some of your poems. I think I might even uh, twist your arm and get you to regale us with one of them. We're talking today with Dr. David Russell Mosley, who is the, the Dean of Academics at the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame in Spokane, Washington. We're talking about the role of poetry and of artistic expression within the Catholic intellectual tradition. Join the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls, but don't go anywhere because there's much more to come right after this. Listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief in our daily life. I'm your host, D.L. And one of the ways we explore implications is to meditate on them, to sit with the articles of our faith, to you know, roll them around in our fingers and to chew on them and to just wrestle with them. One of the best ways that you can do that to wrestle with your thoughts is to express those thoughts in an artistic manner, whether that's to uh, to draw a picture. Even if you're not an artist, that's okay. Do it anyway, right? Uh, you think back to if if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, you must become like one of these little children. And these little children, I have a whole bunch of them. They like to express themselves in a variety of ways. Uh, every time I go on a business trip, I will find a, um, a cut-up colored card. And the first question I get when I walk in the door is, did you see my card? And I better have seen that card. Um, because they, they're expressing their, their heart and the things that are dear to them through coloring and scissoring. And thankfully so far, it's all been on paper. Um, but then there's also this idea of expressing oneself, even in our words, in an artistic way, not just merely writing down our thoughts or journaling them, which is a good first step. If you're not doing that yet, go ahead and do that. But then also to sit down and to craft those words into something finished, uh, into, in this case, a poem. And so we're talking today about expressing this artistic way, the Catholic intellectual tradition, as we look at the 700th anniversary of the death of Dante and have been encouraged by Pope Francis and by the academic world at large to read the Divine Comedy and so today to talk about that, we're talking with the Dean of Academics at Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame in Spokane, Washington, Dr. David Russell Mosley. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, TL. So here we are. Um, let's deal with this question of, but I'm not good enough. I can't do that kind of thing. Um, I'm not a professional. And, and even beyond that, that idea of I don't have the skill or the patience or the anything else to do anything beyond a first draft. The idea of wrestling with a poem until it fits within those constraints that you want it to. The key so often is, you know, not to let fear get in the way, right? To just sit down and do it anyway. Do it, as you said, do it badly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, sometimes if the first draft is all you can get out of something like that, fine. You know, one of the things I, I do just for the fun of it every now and again is I do little ink sketches with my my pens. I, I'm not very good at all, but I like to do them and, you know, I'll take a picture, share it on the social media, whatever, because it's fun. And I did it. But sometimes there are ones where like, oh, God, that looks terrible. Okay, nope, not doing that one anymore. And then I wait a couple of days and I come back and I get a another blank page in my little notebook and I do another one and maybe that one comes out a little bit better. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's how you do it. It's just those little steps of just sit down and do it. Well, so right, I write a poem, draw a picture. Yeah. And then come back to it again. Later. I've got little kids. We've talked about mm-hmm. this many times over people. You've all <laughs> seen the pictures of my kids. Um, when they are very little, they do things very badly. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the process of getting up and learning to walk. And the number of times that they fall and thankfully it is hardwired into them. No, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to do it until I get it. Uh, There's something as we get older and we're taller and the falls hurt a little bit more. 
that we tend to not want to risk that, whether that be a physical fall or an emotional one. Mm-hmm. And yet it is the process of doing that thing over and over again that provides us a, a deepening of understanding and a deepening of soul. Yeah. So what would be a, maybe a challenge that you could give, um, a place where someone could get writing prompts or a way that someone could begin that process of fighting their thoughts into those constraints that you mentioned earlier? Sure. Um, so every, I think it's April, it's, uh, and I'm going to get the acronym completely wrong. It's not NaNoWriMo. I think it's NapoRimo mm-hmm. or something along that, but it's National Poetry Writing Month. And so you can, there's a website and you can go and they'll do daily prompts for that. They'll give you a series of topics on which to write a poem. And then if you want to do something like that, you can say, and if it's too daunting to write just a general poem, say, okay, I'm going to write a sonnet for every single one of those. I'm going to go learn what a sonnet is, and I'm going to follow the rules for that particular style. Mm. Another way to do it, and this is something that I've done before, is find, a, and it's basically what I'm doing with Dante, find a thing where the prompts are there for you. Yeah. You know, maybe you want to uh, reflect on the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Right. So you just, you list out the seven I am statements and you say, okay, I'm going to write a poem on every single one of these, or I want to focus on the mysteries of the rosary. So you go look at the mysteries of the rosary and you say, okay, maybe doing all of them is a little daunting. So you pick your favorite one. Mm-hmm. You know, I started with the luminous mysteries because that was my favorite one. I said, okay, I'm going to write a poem for every single one of these. And you just, you do that, right? You get into that practice and it doesn't matter if it's good or bad at first. It's just reflect on it, right? Find the words that help you think about that thing. And if you get to a place where you're doing them really well, maybe you take the Psalm from the reading of scripture or look at all the readings for a given mass and say, right. what do I feel about this? What's my experience with these writings? And then like the Psalmist, just be very blunt and honest and open and express that uh, out to the page. Right. Make it a prayer, you know, make it part of your examine. Uh, If you do a daily exam, an examination of your conscience, make it part of that. Write a poem that expresses where you fell short and where you saw God. Uh, You know, and if you get start to get really good at it, make those conversational poems between the sin that's in you, right, and the grace of God that's in you. Now let's look at this because I can I can feel a certain segment of the audience saying Mm -hmm. this sounds like high school youth group. Right. It sounds like in doing this, I am somehow making light of the topic and of the Catholic intellectual uh, expression of it and turning it into a kumbaya moment that I can kind of then set aside on a shelf. So what is it in your experience Mm -hmm. that that sees this poetry as a deepening of that understanding as opposed to other people's experience where they their whole experience of poetry is that it diminishes or that Mm -hmm. it gets set aside. There's obviously a disconnect here. Draw us into the place where you are. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I completely understand. And, and there is, people have this, uh, and rhyming poetry in particular has undergone this kind of change where people think it's just for kids. It's a, it infantilizes things or it just, it makes them silly, but it makes them quaint. Uh, For me, it's, it's about seeing how do these things work in tension with one another? 
you know, rhyming is, is a very interesting thing that variety of languages have used in their poetry to connect two words that are normally unconnected and causes you, if you stop then and read back over it and think about it, what is the relationship between these? Why did I choose these? Maybe I just chose them because I needed a rhyme, but is there something I can learn from this? Right. And so use it as a way, not just as something you put away then, but as something that you'll bring back, that you'll use as, you know, let's take the, the mysteries of the rosary as an example. If you choose to write a series of poems on those, use them the next time you pray the rosary, mm-hmm. right? When you get to the mystery, when you announce the mystery, maybe in that particular prayer, you don't go to the scriptures that are sometimes associated with them. Read the poem that you wrote. Read it as a prayer. It's what Seamus Heaney was told to do by a, a monk in confession. Uh, and he told him then to go translate some Juan de la Cruz. And th- that whole exchange becomes the poem Station Island 11, mm-hmm. right? Which is this poem that's part Heaney's experience and then part a translation of a poem from St. John of the Cross. Right? Read poems as prayers, including your own. Speaking of, if you're looking for a place to start, the we talk about the breviary here all the time, the four-volume Liturgy of the Hours that has all the prayers of the church. Did you know, and I know that you did, Dr. Mosley, but did the rest of you know that in the back of that, there is an appendix in every volume of a number of poems that help you reflect on the prayers and the place that we are in the liturgical calendar. And one of the reasons that the poetry is there is because it helps you reflect, but one of the reasons that the prayer is there is because it helps you begin to breathe and think and read in cadence. And the prayers of the Psalms are breathed and read in cadence together in community. And so the act of reading poetry can also help you in deepening your prayer life and in your corporate prayer. Absolutely. So since we're talking about this poetry and we're talking about Dante, I'd like to take an opportunity, if possible, to have you express to us one of these poems that you've read, written as you have read and reflected on the Divine Comedy by Dante. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, so the poem I want to share, this is from Canto 5. So if you want to understand all of it, go read Canto 5. Pause right now and then go read it. Uh, but to give a brief you know, download of what's going on, the pilgrim and Virgil have entered the circle of the lustful, right? And so this is where they meet a couple named Francesca and Paolo who started their adulterous relationship after reading up to the point in the story of Sir Lancelot and Guinevere where they kiss. And then they stopped reading that day and they kissed and they continued their adulterous relationship and are now in hell, which is why I always tell my students, this is why you always need to do all the reading because look (laughs) at what happens if you don't. (laughs) so uh it's issues of lust of love of obviously sin um that is being uh reflect that i've tried to reflect on in this uh poem here on canto five so i'll share that with you now i am enthralled by the movement of desire the tale encircles twice to show my place, and I must join the murmuration in fire. Now look upon these sinners, see the face of Venus infernal, of reason losing the reins that guide the soul chariots' horses from place to place. 
But being in my body, I will regain a chance to leave the lovers to their lust. Yet first I must wake so I can be moved again by the diurnal power of the just. Hmm. That, of course, is a poem reflecting on, in ten lines, in a specific rhyming pattern, in iambic pentameter, reflecting on the Divine Comedy, specifically in uh, the Inferno section, Cantos 5. And so tell me a little bit now that you've gone mm-hmm. through that. How did that help you crystallize your understanding of that? And what were you expressing that maybe we wouldn't catch on first glimpse, but it helped you refine your own thought about it? Absolutely. Canto five is, it's a really interesting one because the pilgrim shows up and it's pretty clear. I think that Dante is expressing that if he were in hell or when he goes to purgatory, he's going to end up with the lustful wherever he is. Uh, There are a variety of, of hints and clues throughout the text that show us that it's probably one of the places that he'd place himself. Uh, a sin that he particularly struggles with. Uh, And, you know, I think it's a sin that a lot of people particularly struggle with, and it's one that has become kind of taboo to talk about in a lot of ways. It's a sin that I struggle with as a man in the 21st century. So seeing how Dante struggles with this, thinking about him placing himself there to a certain extent, reflecting on it poetically allowed me to put myself in the pilgrim's shoes. Right, to think about what if my place was there, right? What would that look like? And then to turn to the state that the pilgrim's in that he's just visiting these places. He hasn't landed there yet. You know, the gates of hell may say, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, but the pilgrim doesn't have to do that. He can hold on to his hope. But there is this justice, right? This power, which is God, that is guiding him through this. And so looking at lust, looking at this particular canto in this way, allowed me to really better understand my own relationship to sin and to lust, and how Dante the poet might have felt when he was describing these things that are almost, again, certainly sins that he knows he is struggling with. In a sense, this sounds somewhat like the Ignatian practice of imaginative prayer, of saying, I'm going to to imagine myself in relation to this verse of scripture or in relation to this reality that's in front of me, and I'm going to meet God in my imagination in this place and see what it is that he has to tell me. Absolutely. No, and I think it goes even a little bit, the divine comedy itself goes a little bit further in the sense that and I haven't found any like real proper Dante scholar who's backed this up. I still think it's a pretty good idea, which is that the divine comedy can be read almost as uh, going through the sacrament of uh, reconciliation, hmm. of penance, because you start where we're all supposed to start, right? An examination of conscience, looking at the sins that we have committed. And in the inferno, that's exactly what we do. And we're not only looking at the sins that we've committed, but we're contemplating what happens if I don't change my ways? What happens if I don't repent? Right? What is the punishment that waits for me if I don't turn back to God, who's trying to tug me along this entire time? And then we get to the purgatorio, right? where sins are purged, where I learn the ways that I need to transform how I think about my sin and the kinds of things that are necessary 
to retrain how I see the world. And eyesight's very important to Dante. There's a reason why St. Lucy is one of the uh, women who are part of how the pilgrim ends up on this journey, because it goes Mary, Lucy, Beatrice. So we have to retrain how we see ourselves, right? That's the penance that we receive from the priest, right? That's us confessing our sins and receiving the penance. And then the Paradiso, right? What do we see but blessedness? The very thing that we're prepared for in the absolution, Hmm. right? And so the whole book to me reads like uh, an act of confession, uh, and I think it can be read that way. And it's not the only layer. There are lots of things going on here. But it can, and and I think should, to a certain extent, be read that way by us. Well, I have to tell you, I'm going to read it that way now because that's a beautiful picture. Uh, if you want to be a part of that as well, join the 100 Days of Dante. you got to catch up a little bit because it's been going for about a month. Uh, but it's well worth it. Uh, Pope Francis has asked us to read Dante this year, and I encourage you to join me in that process. We've been talking today with uh, Dr. David Russell Mosley, who's the Dean of Academics at the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame in Spokane, Washington. Uh, he, you have a new book of poetry, The Green Man, available on uh, Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. I will link to it on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Dr. Mosley, thank you for joining us today. TL, thank you so much for having me on. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. David Russell Mosley, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, learn more about our Patreon support community by clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the page that says Patreon-support-the-show. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air week in and week out. And in gratitude, we give them an extra segment with our guest. Uh, this week, we talked a little bit about Dr. Mosley's new book of poetry called The Green Man. We talk a little bit about that book, where it came from, and he reads one of his poems for us. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, come over, learn more about our Patreon support community. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium, catechism, documents of the church right at your fingertips. Learn more at verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes just perfectly uh, from today's reading from Mass from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child over and placed it in their midst and said, Amen, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven Always look upon the face of my heavenly Father. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's a difficult one for us to really understand. Uh, we, we tend to take it at face value and say, oh yeah, i got to become like a little child, without taking the time to really meditate on what that means. Um, the, uh, the disciples were expecting that this was a straightforward question. It was going to have a straightforward answer. There was going to be some kind of a punch list that they could follow. If I do these things, um, these tangible, understandable things, I will become 
uh, or I have the, the, the opportunity to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think they were imagining that there was some sort of competency attached to the, the behavior of the person who would be the fulfillment of that. This person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because of X, Y, Z. And he turns it on, on its head and says, uh, we're not going to talk about the greatest just yet. First, we're going to talk about the entrance requirements. If you even want to enter the kingdom of heaven, each of you has to turn and become like children. Well, children were not necessarily uh, well thought of in first century Palestine. Uh, and so they, they, it certainly wasn't wasn't like it is today where the parents are posting all the pictures on Instagram and saying, oh, look how, how cute my child is. There, It was a hard life. And so now we have to go back and become like little children again. What does that what does that mean? Well, there's any number of nuances that we can take from it. And what it meant to the disciples may not be the same thing that it that we understand it to be with our understanding of children today. But the question still remains for us, what does it mean for me to humble myself like a little child? Maybe it's to enter into these questions of imagination to to think of things bigger than we are. Maybe it has to do with putting all of our trust in the divine providence of God, of not worrying too much about tomorrow and not being too, too regretful over the, over the past, but really living in the present moment and engaging the entirety of ourselves in the place where we are. Maybe it's all to do with dependence upon God and humility, realizing our own weakness, our own inability to be just absolutely amazing at everything. The willingness to do something poorly, as we talked about earlier, just for the sake of loving that thing. There's any number of different ways that this can be read, and I'm sure that there is a way that that it was initially meant for the disciples. But the question is, how is the Holy Spirit wanting to use that scripture today to speak to you, to take the time and to meditate on it, to sit with it? Maybe write a poem about what, what does it mean for you today to become like children, to humble yourself like a little child? And the answer to that question is going to be different for you than it was for them because God is speaking to you as, as you, as a person you are not a first century Palestinian. And so the answer that God will give to you as he unpacks that question of what it looks like for you to become a little child, because you are an individual and a person, is going by necessity to be different than it was for someone else. So take the time, sit with that uncomfortable question, maybe a little bit in silence and reflect on it, meditate on it and say, what does it look like for me to enter paradise, to enter the kingdom of heaven, as opposed to these other locations that Dante wrote about. Our reading from Church History Today comes from a treatise on John by St. Augustine. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Do not think that you are drawn against your will. The will is also drawn by love. We must not be afraid of men who weigh words, but are far from understanding what belongs above all to the divine truth. They may find fault with this passage of Scripture and say to us, How can I believe my own free will if I am drawn to believe? I answer, It is not enough that you are moved by the will, for you are drawn also 
by desire. What does this mean to be drawn by desire? Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The heart has its own desires. It takes delight, for example, in the bread from heaven. The poet could say, everyone is drawn by his own desire, not by necessity, but by desire, not by compulsion, but by pleasure. We can say then with greater force that one who finds pleasure in truth, in happiness, in justice, in everlasting life is drawn to Christ. For Christ is all these things. Are our bodily senses to have their desires, but not the will? If the will does not have its desires, how can Scripture say the children of men will find their hope under the shadow of your wings? They will drink their fill from the plenty of your house, and you will give them drink from the running stream of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we shall see light. Show me one who loves. He knows what I mean. Show me one who is full of longing, one who is hungry, one who is a pilgrim and suffering from thirst in the desert of this world, eager for the fountains in the homeland of eternity. Show me someone like that, and he knows what I mean. But if I speak to someone without feeling, he does not understand what I am saying. You have only to show a leafy branch to a sheep, and it is drawn to it. If you show nuts to a boy, he is drawn to them. He runs to them because he is drawn, drawn by love, drawn without any physical compulsion, drawn by a chain attached to his heart. Everyone is drawn by his own desire. This is a true saying. And earthly delights and pleasures set before those who love them succeed in drawing them. If this is so, are we to say that Christ revealed and set before us by the Father does not draw us? What does draw the soul's desire more than truth? Why then does the soul have hungry jaws, a spiritual palate, as it were, sensitive enough to judge the truth, if not in order to eat and drink wisdom, justice, truth, and eternal life? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, that is, here on earth. They shall be satisfied, that is, in heaven. Christ says, I give each what he loves. I give each the object of his hope. He will see what he believed in, though without seeing it. What he now hungers for, he will eat. What he now thirsts for, he will drink to the full. When? At the resurrection of the dead. For I will raise him up on the last day. That reading comes from a treatise on John by St. Augustine. And who does this have implications for Dante, for the divine comedy, for the inferno and purgatory and paradise? What are the things that we hunger for in this life? What are the things that catch our attention and draw us? Now is the time for us to adjust our palates, to hunger for righteousness, to seek after this relationship with God the Father, so that when the day comes and the resurrection occurs, we will be filled with all the sweetness of heaven. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Neil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and consider joining their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. 